Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Good morning. My name is Stan. We're going to be reading the first chapter of the book of Ruth. It's between Judges and 1 Samuel, if you're unfamiliar. It's a short story in the Bible, and you may have read it many times, but it's a significant story. It seems insignificant because it's short, uh, but I'm looking forward to hearing this taught. It's going to be great. Ruth chapter 1, here in a few pages. Are we good? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites. Is that, did I get that, Bradley? Ephrathites from Bethlehem in, Ju- in Judah. You know, when you practice reading these things, you should really read it out loud because when you read it in your head, it sounds one way and then it comes out another. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left there with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left there without her two sons and her husband." Then she arose and her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with, where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see your sister and in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following uh, you. For where you go, I will go, 
and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, and the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Stan. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray together. Lord, I imagine for all of us, it feels a little bit unusual that we are living in an Old Testament book and a story about Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, at the Christmas season. And so I simply ask, Lord, that you would do two things. Number one, that you would help us live well in this story. This was inspired by your Holy Spirit and written and recorded and kept for us because you intended us to learn something about you from this story. And so I pray that you would teach us that from Ruth, that we would live well in this story and that we would, we would see and know and understand and take to heart why the, what is written here and why it was written. And the second thing I ask is, Lord, that you would help us to see that you are a consistent God. The way you work in Ruth and Naomi is the same way you worked in Mary and Joseph, and it's the same way you're working in all of our lives today. And so I pray that we would see that and know that and savor our newborn king this Christmas season through it all. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. amen. All right, so there's a... Let's get the context. There's a couple of bookends that we need to get, a front end and a back end of this story before we dive into the details. The first, I want you to notice the first few words of the very first verse in the book of Ruth. What does it say? In the days when the judges ruled. That's significant. That's referring to about a 400-year period in Israel's history that took place after Joshua led the nation of Israel into the promised land and before there were any kings appointed. You remember the first king was Saul. There's a 400-year period between entering the promised land, the era of Joshua, and King Saul. It's about 1500 to 1100 BC, and it was a terrible time in Israel's history. Terrible time. The, in our English Bibles, the book of Ruth follows the book of Judges, which records a lot of what happened during that period. And you can look at the very last verse of the book of Judges, and you can see what kind of period of history this was. Judges 21, verse 25, it'll be on the screen, or you can flip over a page. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is a dark period. 
There's this pattern. The people would sin and rebel against God. God would judge them. He would, in many cases, allow foreign pagan nations to occupy them, overthrow them, and then he would send a redeemer or a judge to deliver them. Case in point, Judges chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines, you've probably heard of them, for 40 years. They rebelled, they sinned. God handed them over to the Philistines for 40 years. 40 years, get your head around that. 40 years, and then God shows up to a married, childless couple. The man's name is Manoah. We don't know his wife's name. All we know is she's barren. She's childless. But God comes to them and says, you're going to have a child, and that child's going to be a judge and a redeemer in Israel to deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. Just keep in mind, this is after 40 years. Now we're going to have a baby. Anybody impatient? (laughs) Besides me. 40 years, then we're going to have a baby. That child, you might know, Samson. Samson was born to Manoah and his wife, and he delivered God's people. This is the pattern that's going on. And the story, just think about that for a minute. A childless married couple just trying to do life, just trying to navigate being childless. That's painful, that's hurtful, that's, 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 you know, one of the worst things that could happen at this period in history is that you not have a child. It's not as big a deal today, but back then it was huge. This couple just trying to navigate that, and then God shows up in these little lives and says, you're going to have a child, and he's going to deliver my people. Can you imagine how Manoah and his wife struggled to get their head around that? Their little lives, God's working, and he's working in a nation. This is what's happening in the book of Ruth. Ruth and Naomi... These two little people, these two little lives, and God is working at a very personal, very family level, and he's working at a national level. I heard somebody say one time, if God's doing one thing, he's doing a trillion things. If he's working in small ways, he's accomplishing big, good purpose. This is what's going on in the story of Ruth. That's the front end. Okay, we, we understand the context. Now look at the back end. Turn to chapter four of the book of Ruth, verse 21 and 22. <clears throat> verse 21, chapter four. Salmon, not the fish, fathered Boaz. We're going to meet Boaz next week. Boaz fathered Obed. Ruth marries Boaz, right? That's where this is going. Boaz and Ruth fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Do you see that? Obed, the son of Boaz and Ruth, is David's grandfather. That's that's amazing. Again, I want you to just, before we enter the story, get your head around this. Little Ruth, little Naomi, we have the advantage of knowing where God is going with this, right? But Ruth and Naomi didn't have that advantage. They didn't have that knowledge. They just had to live through this. They had to live through and trust this God who works in the worst of times. 
who's doing things that we struggle to get our heads around, that are so big and so massive, we can't fathom the magnitude of them. We're just trying to survive. Does anybody identify with that? We're going through these circumstances and these trials and these difficulties and these pains, and God is working in a big way. That's what's happening in the story of Ruth and Naomi. So as we enter the story, I just want us to keep in mind, they don't have the advantage of knowing the end from the beginning. They're living through this, so let's enter into the story with them. There's a lifetime of trial, difficulty, and tragedy in the first five verses. A lifetime's worth. There's a famine in Judah where Elimelech and his wife Naomi live, and that famine is apparently severe enough that it gets them on the move. They, they uproot and they move to the land of Moab. Now, Moab, if you don't know anything about that, that's a, a pagan territory. They worship false gods. They're the descendants of Lot. Remember Abraham and Lot? They're Lot's descendants, but they're a pagan people, and they're, they're, they're a snare for Israel. The Israelites connecting with Moabites is never in, in terms of history, been a really good idea because they end up leading them into worshiping false gods and ergo the pattern of sin, rebellion, rejection, idolatry, judgment, and then deliverance that's going on in this time period, okay? Elimelech and Naomi, for the sake of survival, they do something very risky. They go to the land of Moab. Why? Because it's raining there. It's not raining in Judah. It's risky. Yahweh had said, to his people Israel, you stay separate from such people. But Elimelech, I think they're sincere. I don't think they succumb to idol worship while they're in Moab. I'm going to show you why I think that's the case a little bit later on. I think this is a sincere, devoted couple that continue to worship and remain devoted to Yahweh while they're in Moab. They're there to survive. A little family of four, Elimelech, Naomi, and two boys, Malon and Chilion. They're there. But they get there. We don't know exactly how long Elimelech dies. What a blow. What a blow. You've already, because of a famine, been uprooted from everything that's familiar people that are familiar, a culture that's familiar, a language that's familiar, a land that's familiar, and you've moved because you've got to survive. And when you get there, dad, husband dies. But all hope is not lost. She still has her two boys, Malon and Chilion, and they take Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. Little side note, you know, Oprah's name was supposed to be Orpah, and I think her mother misspelled it. Isn't that true? Okay. That was free. Um, Orpah and Ruth marry Malon and Chilion. And at some point, 10 years goes by and they die. These boys die. Another blow. Blow after blow. And here's something I think that often doesn't get noticed. 10 years they're married. I think that's the way the timeline works. And no grandchildren. This is horrible. This is incredibly sad. Blow after blow after blow. Now what? You ever said, now what? Like, can anything else go wrong, Lord? Well, a glimmer of hope 
starts to break through in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Then she, talking about Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. If anything's clear, we got to get this. I think this is one of the primary things the writer of Ruth wants us to know and understand right out, right from the get-go. If anything's clear, it's that God is sovereign over all of this. I don't, listen, I don't know how you think about COVID, about the tragedy in your life, the trial in your life, the difficulty in your life. Everybody loves to say when things are going like we want them, man, God is good. Look what the Lord has done. But then when it's bad, when it's hard, when it's painful and ugly and nasty and the tears are flowing, we don't tend to sing, look what the Lord has done. Start blaming the devil or our wife or our husband or our children or our neighbor or our boss. It's their fault. God didn't do this, but this is what's so clear. God is sovereign all of this. God caused the famine that uprooted Naomi and Elimelech and got them on the move. And then he caused the famine to relent that got Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, they're all widows now, got them back on the move to Judah. God is sovereign in all of this. And here's what's fascinating to me. It blows my mind. Naomi is not fuzzy about that. She is not fuzzy about the sovereignty of God. Look at a couple of verses. Look at the end of verse 13, the last sentence. No, my daughters, she says, talking to Ruth and Orpah, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Who's she blaming? God. Verse 20 and 21. When they come back to Bethlehem and the women are blown away that all this has happened to Naomi, look what Naomi says to them. She says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Does Naomi have any doubt about the sovereignty of God? She's not fuzzy about that. But here is where I do think she's fuzzy. Here's where I think she's off. And this is where we struggle. She's not questioning the sovereignty of God. But because she can't see the big picture, she fails to see that Yahweh is still for her, not against her. This is, look, I talk to people all the time if, if, if you're new to Res Church, I just want to go ahead and tell you, we hold the sovereignty of God, the absolute sovereignty of God, high. And that's a gross understatement. We hold it high because the Bible lauds his sovereign rule. 
and, and, and where people struggle many times with the sovereignty of God is, yes, he's sovereign and he's in control when things are good, but they struggle to hold fast to his sovereignty when things are not good, when things are heavy and hard and painful. Because we can't reconcile in our minds a sovereign God who's still being good and is still for us when it's painful and when it's hard. Naomi, she's battling the same kind of misguided thinking that leads all of us in the trial and tragedy to exaggerate hopelessness. We don't see hope, we don't hold to hope in the midst of trial and tragedy because somehow we concluded that either God's not in charge, he's either distanced himself, or he has somehow turned against me, that he can't be for me and still lead me and and guide me through the darkest valleys of life. And I wonder why we forget that. Because you know this. This is what Romans 8 declares, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love, the love, the love, the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? What's the obvious answer? No. Distress? Shall persecution? No. Famine? There it is. Or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake... We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all, in all. Can we just say in all? In all all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If God is for us, isn't it good news to know that when you're going through the most difficult season of your life, here's what you can know for certain. For certain, God's still in control, and he's still for you. You're just struggling to see the big picture. That's what Naomi's struggling with. Her short-sightedness has caused her to exaggerate hopelessness and has blinded her to God's provision for her. One thing is that the famine has relented, and now there's food in Judah again. It's a glimmer of hope breaking through. But there's also, despite widowhood for all of them, there are these two daughters-in-law that are with her, one in particular, and she's so concerned for them, she's so concerned for them that she begs them to leave and go home. Let's let's look at, their only hope is to go back to Moab in in Naomi's mind. Look at verse 8 again. But but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then listen to it. Then she kissed them, and they lifted their voices and wept. Can you go there? It's incredibly sad, isn't it? It's terribly sad. Put yourself there with these three women looking around, going, now what? And Naomi, the elder one, who feels responsible for them, she feels like they've been innocently caught up in the Lord's bitter dealing with her. This is not your fault, girls. Go back. Go back to your mothers. Go back to your home. 
find a husband, have a great life. This is terrible for me. Don't feel any loyalty to me. You go take care of yourselves. And they kissed each other and they wept. This is so terribly sad. But if you think about it, it's also incredibly sweet. Thank God. Isn't it, is it not his provision when we, in the worst pain, we find that there are people who are willing to sit in the ashes with us? People that are willing to cry with you? Don't discount that. Don't fail to see that as hope that God hasn't abandoned you, that God hasn't turned his back on you, that he hasn't, his hand has not gone out against you. He's actually for you. I call them those little God nuggets, those little glimmers of hope in the worst tragedies where we know he's just letting us know, I'm here. And sometimes... When you look around and all you see is utter destruction and you can't find hope to latch on to, maybe there's someone, maybe multiple someones who are just willing to sit in the ashes with you and cry. They don't have the answers, but they love you and they're there. Don't discredit that. Verse 10. And they said to her, no, we will, this is Ruth and Orpah, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? This is yet another evidence of Naomi's exaggerated hopelessness. She's referencing a Jewish custom, which we're going to become familiar with as we get further in this book. The Jewish custom is, is that when a husband dies, his brother or nearest relative would take the widow, his brother's widow, as his wife in order to care for her and provide for her. And what Naomi is saying is she's looking at Ruth and Orpah and going, do I have sons in my womb for you? There's no one in, don't worry about carrying on the family name. I have no son to offer you. And even if I did, even if I found a husband and I got pregnant, would you wait? For them to come of age, apparently she's forgotten that there's a relative in Judah, in Bethlehem, named Boaz. We're going to meet him next week. This is Ruth's, or Naomi's exaggerated hopelessness. She's trying to convince them to turn back. And finally, she does convince Orpah. Orpah turns back, but Ruth is sticking there. And so Naomi makes one more attempt to get Ruth to turn back. Verse 15. And she said, see... Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. I would, if you write in your Bibles, I'd underline and circle this. She's gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Did do you see that? Orpah went back to her people and to her gods. But what does Ruth do? This is where the orchestra comes in. I think this is where the trumpets of hope start to sound because in the midst of all this tragedy, remember what we know about Moab. This is a pagan territory, pagan gods. Elimelech and Naomi have moved there. And this is why I am convinced 
God has worked in Ruth and why I'm convinced that Elimelech and Naomi did not succumb to idol worship while they were in Moab. Look what Ruth says, verse 16. Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. She, she, verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. She risks with Naomi in four ways. Number one, she's abandoning her family and her homeland. That's a big deal. Number two, as far as she knows, she's embracing a futurehood, a future of widowhood and childlessness. Naomi can't promise her anything. Number three, she's going to a new land with new people, new customs, and a new language. It's completely foreign territory for her. And number four, she's all in. Where you die, I'll die. There's no turning back. There's no wishy-washiness in her. I think Yahweh has worked in her. And I say that for all those reasons, and then more so for this reason. She looks at Naomi and says, you're God will be my God. Wait a minute. What God are we talking about? We're talking about Yahweh, whom Naomi has said, has dealt bitterly with me. We're talking about Yahweh, whom Naomi has said, his hand has gone out against me. We're talking about Yahweh, who Naomi has said, he brought me out of Judah full, and he's brought me back empty. This is the testimony that Naomi's bearing to Ruth of Yahweh. And Ruth looks at her and says, your God, that God is going to be. Orpah went back to her people and her gods, but Ruth said, nope, I'm with you. And your God, Yahweh, is going to be my God. I can't speculate about this too much, but I think when Elimelech and, and Naomi got to Moab, I don't think they succumbed to idol worship at all. I think they worshiped Yahweh and they remained devoted to Yahweh. And Ruth, when she married, either Maon or Chilion, we're not sure which one she married, she learned. She was taught. God did something in her and despite the fact that she has no answers, she does not know where this is going, she's going into completely unfamiliar territory, and she looks at Naomi and says, I'm going where you go, I'm going to stay where you stay, I'm going to die where you die, and your God will be my God. Ruth has somehow come to know. This is utterly astonishing because God is at work. And I love the last verse in chapter one. It says, they returned to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I can't wait for next week. <laughs> Who would have imagined? This is all we're going to talk about today. We're going to end right here. Who would have imagined that God was working in the worst of times? that in the little lives of Naomi and Ruth, he's not only doing something at a personal and family level, he's doing something at a national level. A major, listen, a major piece of the redemptive story is being put in place right now.
It's from the line of Ruth and Boaz that not only David, with whom God will make covenant and say, I'm going to establish your throne forever, but it's from this line that Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in the city of David. It's putting a major piece here. And here's what we know. The same God who worked in Ruth and Naomi's life, worked in Mary and Joseph's life, and he's working in your life and my life. And he's always, listen, he's always consistent. I don't know about you, but many, many times, many, 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 many times in my life, I have not been able to see the big picture. I don't understand what God is doing. But you know what I forget? Never should any of us ever say, I don't think God's really being himself. He's just not, I don't know what's the deal. He's just not himself with me right now. He's always consistent. Psalm 102, verse 25, look at it on the screen. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are at work, are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will, re they will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same. And your, e your years have no end. He doesn't change. He works in the same way all the time. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. That's a massive statement. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes God's gifts don't feel good and perfect. But every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He doesn't change. Just We see this in Ruth and Naomi. Famine, death, tragedy, sorrow, childlessness, and God's working. And he's for them, and he's good. And Naomi, especially, Ruth too, they can't fathom the magnitude of it. Do you think Mary and Joseph, I, I think... They had a little perspective because they'd both been visited by angels. That helps. That, that helps, okay? But do you think they had their heads around a national, really, for all intents and purposes, global census, because it covered the known world, that uprooted their little lives from Nazareth to get them to Bethlehem? When we talked through that last, the beginning of this year, I think even, I said, you know, God could have just caused Joseph to get a better job in Bethlehem. Just, you know, maybe a family member dies in Bethlehem and leaves them a house. Hey, Mary, let's go there. We can have the child there. After they get past, yeah, it was the Holy Spirit that got me pregnant. And, but no, God turns an entire kingdom a world power upside down with a census to get his two little people about 90 miles to a different town, to the city of David. 
Wouldn't, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it do us some good to just humble ourselves? See, I don't know how COVID or cancer or death or betrayal or disappointment have visited you. The things that you might consider not even to be your fault that are going on. Nothing you could do about it. It's just, it happened. And it is happening. And you're living through it. I don't know how that's landed for you. And, and, and hear me, I would never, never trivialize that. I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not even dinging Naomi. I'm not dinging Ruth for not being able to see the big picture. We're incapable of that. And God hasn't asked us to see the big picture. But I do think it would do us some good to just humble ourselves and say, our God is sovereign and he's good. He's never, for his people, if you're a born again child of God, filled with his spirit, saved by grace through faith, if he's, 1 Peter chapter one, if he's caused you to be born again, if you, Ephesians chapter two, if you, if you once were a child of wrath and now you're a child of God, if you've been saved by grace through faith, if that's you, here's what we know. God is never, ever against you. He's never working against you. Even when he disciplines you, what does Hebrews tell us? He disciplines those he loves. He's never against you any more than I would ever be against my own children. He's sovereign and he's good. It would do us good to humble ourselves and, and admit also that his hand of providence is always there in the worst of days. Those, those of you that have journeyed with the Lord for a while, would you just with an uplifted hand say if it's true, you can look back on some of those dark, dark seasons. And though you couldn't see it at the time, would you testify and say, the Lord's provision was always there? How many of you would say that? Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Don't we just need to remember that? We just need to humble ourselves and remember when it seems like all hope is lost, let me not forget he's always for me so that I don't exaggerate hopelessness, but rather recognizing that he's sovereign and good and his hand of provision is there, I can have hope and I can ask him to help me see it. It's a great prayer to pray when you're in the ashes. Lord, help me see, not just the big picture, because I don't even know if I'm capable of that right now, but let me see your hand of provision for me, which might be, at least in part, he's giving you somebody to sit in the ashes with you. Finally, I think it'd be good for us to humble ourselves and just be grateful that we know, we know, we know, we know, we know that this life is a light and momentary affliction. I can't promise you from God's word, if you're in a dark season, 
If you're in a season where either like Naomi and Ruth or like Mary and Joseph, you can't fathom the magnitude. I can't promise you when you will see and understand. Other than to say, the Bible declares, now we see through a glass dimly, then face to face. Which tells me two things. One day I will understand, and one day all the tears and sorrow and pain will be over. I know that. Let me close with this scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart. We hope. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. I would challenge you just to meditate on this this week. What are, were the unseen things that Naomi and Ruth could have focused on? Naomi knows some things about Yahweh, and Ruth has learned some things. What things could they have focused on? What things that aren't seen right now by you could you focus on and have hope? For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The things that are unseen are eternal. What does that mean? It means God is consistent. God is working. God is doing in the small things really big good things. That even when he's working nationally and globally, he's mindful of you and me and our little lives and our little families. Isn't that good news? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this incredible story that we're just getting started in. Thank you for the opportunity to see your hand at work in the darkest season, I'm sure, of Naomi and Ruth's life. This story is about to get really good in terms of the circumstances are going to improve dramatically just by the end of next week. But right now, this first week of Advent, we're going to sit in the ashes with Ruth and Naomi. We're going we're gonna to sit in the ashes with each other, and we're going to hope. We're going to hope in you, our sovereign God, who's good, who's always for us, never against us, and a God whose love is so strong, so powerful, so consuming, nothing will ever separate us from it or from you. Help us see the ways in which you are already providing, already providing when things seem so hopeless. Help us see hope breaking through, just like we saw in this chapter. Let those glimmers of light begin to light up the darkness in our souls and that we, like the psalmist, would declare, why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. I will praise you, my God and my Savior. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. 
We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.